Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 234. My name is Ariel bin Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu, Malkinu, our Father, our King. Here we are parked right in the middle, as of this recording, in the middle of the fall festivals. And Lord, what a delight to be able to be on the same sheet of music, on the same page of our calendar as your calendar. What a blessing, what a privilege to know that you have given us these special days to highlight the um, the life and times of your son, Yeshua the Messiah, the only true Messiah sent into the world, the only true Lord that uh, we are to recognize and to um, uh, surrender our lives to. So the uh, feasts, as I like to say, are dress rehearsals of messianic redemption. They are given, we would say, Lord, in order to teach us about your son, about his work, about his ministry, about his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his, his intercession. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father now, and he will one day return to planet Earth to take up his rule here on earth and yet the festivals are still pointing to that spring feast pointing to his first coming fall feasts pointing to a second coming so we would do best as followers to avail ourselves of the information that is given to uh, given for us in the bible concerning the festivals even if we don't actually walk into them like many people say we don't need to uh nevertheless we should at least be studying them at the very least and so lord um we delight to do your will, and we want to be pleasing to you. So um, teach us your ways. Uh, guide us by your Holy Spirit into paths of righteousness. Cause us to be lights and to be a witness to those around us. And uh, uh, give us uh, a proper um, heart and attitude to um, continue to press into uh, to be better right to not just wallow in our own uh, self-pity and um our own um failures and uh yes we're going to um make mistakes but lord we're not looking for perfection we're just looking to um have you say well done thou thy uh thou good and faithful servant so thank you lord for this privilege uh be with us tonight as we embark on another study um of eschatology as well as apologetics on the trinitarian topics open our hearts and our ears to receive truth and we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory of Bashim yeshua amen okay here we go thank you for tuning in for another live internet study uh, an hour and a half long uh, broken up into two topics eschatology for the first hour and apologetics for the second half hour let's jump right in uh, where we left off um, just a reminder uh, because of the fall feasts um, on my calendar as I'm recording this um, the date is September the 9th or 10th depending on which part of the world you're living in and so um, we're meeting but next week and I'm just going to bring up my calendar so you guys can see this next week is Rosh Hashanah or the biblical name is Yom, Yom Tua the day of the awakening trumpet blast or head of the year Rosh Hashanah so we're not meeting next week which will be the 16th of September no class take a break go to your respective local congregations and be there the following week which is the 23rd of September we will have class but it will not be a, a live study on the eschatology and trinitarian topics instead it'll be a kind of a combination of the eschatology and end uh, um, um, fall feasts put together where we're going to talk about the um, discussion about 
were the fall feasts given to indicate when the Messiah would return to earth? <clears throat> Do they uh, hint at his second coming being around this time of year? We'll talk about those types of um, issues. I've got a little commentary that I put together a long time ago that talks about that. And I might, and I might also read some um, excerpts from Robert Van Campen's book, The Sign, that deals with that as well. And then the week after that, September the 30th, is Sukkot, right? Feast of Tabernacles. Again, no study. We will not meet that day. Take a break. Be with your local uh, congregation leaders and, and members and things like that. And then the first Saturday in October, which is um, October the 7th, is Shmini Atzeret, the eighth day of assembly, or the uh, otherwise known as Simchat Torah, the final day of Sukkot, the rolling back of the Torah, scroll from Deuteronomy back over to Genesis, rejoicing in the Torah. Again, no class, so we won't meet until the uh, the following week, week, which is the 14th. So, uh, three three absences coming up soon, um, so just making you aware of that right now. All right, let's go back over to the study. This is Eschatology, a biblical study of end-time events, and we are in topic number eight, Yeshua's Olivet Discourse, part one. We only... Uh, began to kind of introduce this idea that there are these strong parallels between what Yeshua gave us in Matthew 24 and what Yeshua gave John on the Isle of Patmos in Revelation chapter 6. So you can see on my screen right now, we looked at this chart last week, so we're going to make reference to this chart as we go along. But as we look at what are known as the trumpet judgments, where John in the book of Revelation describes uh, trumpet, I'm sorry, not trumpets, the seals, the seal, the seals that are um, broken or that are on the outside of this large scroll. I'll put a little screen uh, picture so you can see this, what it looks like, what it might have looked like. Um, this scroll with seven seals on the outside and the only one worthy to open the seals is the lamb who was slain. And John sees this lamb in heaven and the lamb is the one that indeed opens the seals, which of course is Yeshua. So seal uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Those are open in succession, and they correspond parallel one to one with what Yeshua already gave to his disciples in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 17, and Luke 21. Those are the parallel synoptic gospels that outline what we know as the Olivet Discourse. So what I've done is I've created a kind of a verse by verse eschatological essay, uh, part one of verses one through 28. And then part two will cover the rest of the chapter of Matthew 24 here, which is 29 through 51, if I remember the numbers right. So we only got into this last week. We only made it to verse two. So I'm just going to back up and read this. I won't stop and explain it. I'll just read it without stopping. And then we'll um, start looking at verse three. Okay, so I had to say this. The 24th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew stands as a pivotal discourse within the New Testament recognized for its eschatological themes and prophecies. I continue. Spanning from verses 1 to 28 for the first half of this eschatological essay, right? This is something I wrote like 20 years ago. Um, this passage unveils a series of teachings by Jesus, by Yeshua, that address the future tribulations, signs of the end times, and the ultimate return of Christ. I do have to interject briefly. Uh, originally, when I wrote this, I didn't have this big axe to grind with um, preterism. But I realized that when I wrote this, I wrote, and it says, that addressed the future tribulations. Well, from our perspective here in the 21st century, we believe as futurists that many of what many of the details of what you should describe are actually still future. 
But the Predators would say that when Yeshua spoke in the first century, the future was immediate, like 70 AD and or the 130s that were to come afterwards. So destruction of the temple and then the destruction of Jerusalem. But either way, I just realized by looking at my words, it doesn't matter. Future, from Jesus' perspective, could be 70 AD, and part of it was, but it still could be the 21st century or whenever these events befall planet Earth. Still future to Yeshua and the disciples, so works either way. All right, let's continue. I go on to say, in this essay, we will undertake a verse-by-verse analysis of Matthew 24, 1-28, utilizing the New American Standard Bible, i.e. the NASB, for scriptural references, and while engaging in exegesis and critical reflection. Um, This is not a deep dive into those passages. If you want more, I do have a recommendation uh, this is um, Pastor David Guzik. He's a Christian Bible uh, commentator and expositor, and he does a great job of giving you kind of the overview and some of the details of any given Bible passage. He has an entire Bible commentary, so you can see on my screen right now. I've actually even linked this to the in the description below, so you can follow the video and look below in the description. You have this link also. But EnduringWord.com, and there's a Bible commentary on Matthew 24, and I may get to that. I may look at some of that, but I just thought I'd show it to you on the screen just for reference sake. So let's go back over to my own. All right, so the first verse. Uh, verse 1, Jesus came out from the temple and he was and, uh, and was going away when his disciples came up to him to point out the temple buildings to him. And uh, I mentioned that, um, I'll just, again, I'll read this without stopping. This verse establishes the uh, setting for Jesus' discourse, departing from the temple, the disciples drew Jesus' attention to the grandeur of the temple buildings. However, this seemingly innocuous observation provides a seg for Jesus to delve into the prophetic revelations. So he's going to start talking about the temple, the prophetic revelations concerning the temple's future. And I already mentioned last week that when you're dealing with prophecy and biblical importance of events, the epicenter of nations from God's perspective is Israel. But when we look at Israel, the epicenter of Israel is Jerusalem. And when we look at Jerusalem, the epicenter of Jerusalem is the temple. So we zoom in, zoom in, and then we zoom in one more time. And so it makes obvious sense for Yeshua to decide to speak about the end times using the temple as his point of reference. Let's continue with verse 2. So we see here, verse 2 reads, And he said to them, right, his disciples, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And so um, uh, in my uh, short uh, essay commentary, which again, at the time that I wrote this tw- over 20 years ago, I wrote it short enough that I could teach it in a hour-long session once a week. The entire study, the end-time study that I uh, facilitated at my local congregation, The Harvest, uh, back in the early 2000s was uh, only 14 weeks long originally. So all of my notes had to be really, really short, something I could present in one hour's worth of time. But now that I'm doing this on YouTube and I really have got goo gobs of time, I can take as long as I want. But nevertheless, the notes are still short. So um, the written commentary is short, but I will fill in with my own um, uh, additional commentary by audio. 
but the written version says, Jesus' proclamation is profound and startling. He predicts the temple's impending destruction, foretelling an event of great magnitude. Historical records affirm that the fulfillment, right, the partial version, of this prophecy in the siege of Jerusalem by the Romans in AD 70. And so that's a that's a point for the preterists. Yeah, right. I can agree with that. I'm on board with that. His prediction about the stones being overturned, yeah, that literally happened in the first century in 70 AD when the Romans led by um the Roman armies led by Titus um turned over every stone because the intense heat from the fire melted the gold down into the cracks of the stones and they wanted that gold. And so they um, turned over every stone to try and uh, recover that gold. That's exactly what happened. So yeah, shoot. Yeshua's um, words came to pass exactly. Some people might object, hey, what about the, wa the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall that's still standing? All those stones didn't get overturned. Ah, but um, archaeologists say that in the scheme of the design of the temple and its foundation, Yeshua was referring to the stones of the temple, not the stones of the foundation. So that's one answer to the objection as to, hey, they didn't overturn all the stones of the, um, of the Wailing Wall, which they didn't. But now we can, common sense kicks in and says they wouldn't need to because the fire didn't uh, destroy those. It didn't touch those, those, the Wailing Wall, and there was no gold that melted down to the cracks. Otherwise, they would have they would have done that too. So it's kind of common sense. Why didn't they break apart the Wailing Wall? I guess it wasn't part of the temple structure proper, where the gold was melted down into. Thus, we can now kind of retroactively go back to Yeshua's words and realize that Yeshua must have been referring to the temple, not the foundational wall. All right, verse three, which I don't remember if we read last week or not, but here we are. Verse three: As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, "Tell us, when will these things happen?" And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, I, yeah, I'm, I'm quite certain I didn't read this last week. But let's read my commentary now. And then I'll add my own additional uh, verbal commentary to the written version. Uh, the written version says, The disciples, bewildered by Jesus' pronouncement about the temple being destroyed, they seek clarification regarding the timing of the temple's destruction, <clears throat> the signs accompanying his return, and the culmination of the age. Their inquiry amalgamates these events, hinting at their interconnectedness, uh, hinting at their interconnectedness in the eschatological narrative. And so, my additional comments that I want to add just briefly are this. It's interesting when we go back and look at the verse that the disciples ask him, Master, tell us, listen to what they actually say. Tell us, one, when will these things happen? Two, what will be the sign of your coming? And three, and what will be, by context, what will be the sign of the end of the age? So they're asking, generically, broadly, when will these things, i.e. the destruction of the temple, which directly point to the 70 AD event, but since we know that the temple was destroyed and has not been rebuilt, if this indicates a future event that's still future to us in the 21st century, then we must have a rebuilt structure of some sort, the likes of either a full-blown standing temple, 
so that it can be destroyed again, according to Yeshua's words, or we have to have some form of um, altar that allows for sacrifices because um, Paul talks about the Antichrist coming in and desecrating that altar and putting, in a halt, putting a halt to the sacrifices, which goes all the way back to the book of Daniel, where Daniel talked about the little horn uh, bringing an end to the sacrifices as well, but, but, uh, in Daniel chapter 9, around verse 24, 25, 26, 27, talks about bringing the sacrifice to an end and abominating or desecrating the temple. So, when Yeshua's words are put back into context, we can see that the disciples are asking, really, they probably didn't. I, I'm, I'm almost certain that they didn't. They probably didn't have a concept of the near-far aspect of Yeshua's words. They were probably thinking that what he's describing is something that's right around the corner. And, in that regard, the preterists are going to have their win. Um, because, primarily, that is what Yeshua was describing in these um uh, a lot of these details are pointing to something that's right around the corner and it's relevant for them. In fact, to 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 um uh, to kind of bolster my point, when we turn to the parallel passages in Luke of chapter 17 and chapter 21, most of the details given there are also uh, indicative of a very near event known as the 70 A.D. destruction of the temple. To be sure, Yeshua tells them, when you see these things befall you, when you see these things happening, get out, right? Get out of Judea, flee. Don't even go back to get your coat or your cloak or whatever. Don't, don't, you know, don't turn back. If you're in the field, don't turn back. Just get out. So the urgency of the matter seems to kind of indicate more of the 70 A.D. events. But by interest for us tonight, is the fact that that the disciples included these this double when what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age now stop and think about that for a second why would they ask about the coming of your uh, the second uh, the, the the sign of your coming your rival your your parousia your parousia i'm sorry end of the end of the age if yeshua didn't seem to earlier sometime allude to the idea that he was going to leave and then to come back are you following what i'm saying here this is where the preterist has to stop and and think about the question from the disciples perspective they're asking the lord what will be the sign of your return which means Yeshua, by context, must have already told them sometime earlier that he was going to be leaving. Indeed, we know he did. If we corroborate um, what we're looking at here with other passages, particularly that John's a great way, to, great place to go, John 15, 16, 17, he tells the disciples, I'm going back to my Father. I'm going to leave. And I'm going to prepare, you know, the famous, uh, uh, behold, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again and return uh, uh, and uh, uh, gather you unto myself, that where I am there ye may be also. I'm, I'm butchering it, but out of the KJV. You guys know the verse. Um, the idea is that Yeshua has already revealed to his disciples that he's going to be leaving planet Earth, and that where he's going, they can't follow just yet, but later on, they will be able to follow right after they're raptured. But before then, they can't go. He's going to leave. He's going to die. He's going to be resurrected. He's going to go up to ascend to be with his father. Go back to where he came from, right? He describes himself as the only one coming down from heaven and the only one going back up to heaven, right? The only one who ascended and descended. or de and that oh, I'm sorry, in the reverse order, descended and then ascended. So... If the disciples are asking us, asking, when will be the sign of your coming, that means they either A, anticipate that he was returning shortly, right? He was going to leave temporarily and then come back very shortly, which some of them, I think, believe, uh, believe they did. But from the preterist perspective, here's where the preterists have to stop and wrestle with this reality. Jesus did not return in 70 AD bodily. 
maybe we could say he returned spiritually or 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 psychologically or or theologically or an analog analytically or or anal analogously or uh, you know I'm trying to make up kind of humorous words to prove my point is that obviously all of the details that Yeshua is going to give us here in a moment about the signs of his return and the tumultuous times that are approaching and what's going to happen when he does return to establish his kingdom and the the death of the antichrist and the imprisonment of 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 satan for a thousand years during yeshua's reign here on earth all of those details that we have given for us not just in matthew but also in the revelation passages six and seven like i talked about remember this is a parallel the preterists then are stuck because everything didn't come to pass. So the hyper-preterists, the full-blown preterists, they've got a problem. They're, they're borderline heresy anyway. But the, the partial preterists, okay, they've got some challenges in front of them as well. And then I'll add this last detail and then we'll keep going. They asked the Lord, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming? Notice the sequence. The sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And then for the very next, for the next set of 24... 25 almost the entirety of the of the passages almost 50 verses passages verses Yeshua details what he gives them the answer to his question to their question but he reverses the order they ask the questions almost out of order they said what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age um chronologically Yeshua does show up first, and then the age is brought to an end. So we do have that, right? He comes back on, on a white horse, defeats the Antichrist. The age is brought to an end at the Battle of Armageddon, this age. And then the new age is ushered in with the um, uh, the entrance of the, the establishment of the um, Thousand-Year Kingdom. That's the age to come. So that's, the, that's where we have the, the, the separation, the break between this present age, this present wicked evil age, where Satan is still free to roam around and deceive um, humanity, and the difference between the age to come, which is Yeshua's thousand-year reign here on planet Earth, where Satan is bound for a thousand years, right? So we have a difference in those ages. So yes, chronologically, his coming for uh, his uh, second coming chronologically is first, and then the end of the age is second. But what Yeshua does when he answers the question is he gives all these signs of the end of the age, and then he turns around and gives the signs of his second coming which is really kind of strange until we begin to realize that his second coming is actually broken into two primary events. The rapture where his feet don't touch planet Earth and he comes to rescue his saints. And then the physical second coming where his feet do touch planet Earth, specifically the Mount of Olives, he splits that thing in half. And he returns with his saints, right? White horse, and we return with him. Okay, so that's where we can kind of see that, ah, oh, okay, all right, some of these events are going to make sense, why he would kind of perhaps maybe put them out of order, because the end of the age is kind of, um, the bad stuff happens before Yeshua comes back, is the point I'm trying to make. So when we say the end of the age, we could describe that as the bad stuff. So kind of he gives them all this, all the bad stuff up front, and then he tells them, yeah, and then I'm going to return to rescue you guys. All right, so let's keep reading down through this. So verse 4. Let me how are we doing on time? Wow, it's fantastic. Verse 4, And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. All right, I also find it interesting that instead of Yeshua just turning around and answering them saying, What? You guys are asking me about the end times? This is an eschatological question, right, guys? And the disciples are like, Uh, yeah? And Yeshua says, Tell you what, don't need to worry about it. Don't worry about it. It'll all pan out. It'll all work out. 
everything's handled according to my father's plan. Heck, even I don't know when I'm coming back. So don't worry about it. All right. Just focus on what you need to do today. Right. Keep going about your daily lives, serving me, uh, believing me, trusting in me, trusting in my father. But everything, everything will work out. Right. You guys cool with that? No, that's not what Jesus says. He actually takes this opportunity to go into great detail about the events leading up to the end of the age and the events leading up to his return. And he starts by telling him, see to it that no one misleads you, indicating that rough times are ahead, fellas. Right? You guys need to buckle in because it's about to get rough. But also the point I'm trying to make, I'm not trying to be kind of... um sacrilegious in my in my um, irony and in my humor here just trying to get us to understand that he didn't just say hey don't worry about it it's not pan rapturism it's not like everything's just going to pan out if you don't worry about it it's not like hey i could come at any moment so you guys don't even really need to know the details right as an imminency it's really hey i'm going to return but here's what's going to precede my returning he actually gives them signposts so that we can have a sense of the urgency of the matter as to when the time is going to come right when will these events befall us so i think that we should go with what uh, the, the context of what our master gave us in that yes we can't know the exact day or hour when Yeshua returns, but we can, in fact, know the season, and we are, should be—we should know the season because we're not children of darkness, like Paul talks about. We are children of the light. So let's keep reading our Lord's words. So here's what I have to say: acknowledging the potential for misinformation and deception, Jesus underscores the importance of discernment. Right by us believers, this advice remains relevant in any age, reminding believers to critically evaluate teachings and claims right uh the end of the age is going to be earmarked by not just um earthquakes in diverse places and wars and rumors of wars and uh, famine and plague and pestilence and all that other stuff but it's also going to be earmarked by uh false christ right the very first seal that's opened by john but that john sees yeshua open in in the book of revelation chapter six is the seal that indicates a white rider who's given a bow and he's sent to conquer and sent out to conquer and to conquer and to go conquering and this first rider is what we call the emergence of the antichrist the 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 um um the rise of antichrist right i just love saying that the rise of antichrist reminds me of that um of uh, the terminator moves the rise of the machines right uh, the rise of antichrist um during the uh the first half uh, of the seventh what i believe is the uh, 70th week of daniel all right so um false christ and then yeshua continues to elaborate for many will come in my name saying i am the christ and will mislead many interestingly enough he's going to echo this same warning over and over again throughout his this discourse he doesn't just say it once which means many of these seals as they begin to unfold will just continue to gain momentum as the week unfolds itself so if we put the 70th week on a timeline of seven years which i think is good to do instead of stretching it out over um thousands of years like maybe the historicist or the idealist might do but instead we put it on the seven year time frame then what we're seeing is that yeshua says there will be some events that kick off the end time schedule of 70 years a uh, 70 of um, seven years the final seven year stretch but those events are going to continue uh throughout the throughout the the seven years but they'll just keep um building in momentum and intensity kind of snowballing as it were so we'll have uh, false christ start uh increasing uh, as we get near the end of the age, but then we'll have the consummate false Christ make his entrance. 
So you see what I'm saying? What I'm saying? Yeshua is saying, yeah, we're gonna, you're going to have false Christs here and there and everywhere. And, and indeed, even in 70 AD and in 130s, we had the Bar Kokhba revolt, and Bar Kokhba himself is considered a false Christ, an antichrist, some someone who claimed to be a Messiah or was um, labeled as a Messiah by rabbinic Judaism at the time until it ended up being that he was not the true Christ, right? Obviously, he didn't usher in any sort of kingdom. He was um, he was defeated, right? He, the, 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 his revolt came to an end by the Roman armies, right? They just plowed Jerusalem under and renamed it Aelia Capitolina. It wasn't even Jerusalem anymore. Well, this means that if the Messiah was supposed to come and establish his thousand-year kingdom, well, nothing happened in the first century. And that's my kind of challenge to the preterists, even the partial ones. If supposedly 70 AD was the event that um, Yeshua was talking about and nothing else, if there was no future event to follow after that, then what happened to Yeshua's kingdom? They say, ah, it's here, it's in our hearts, right? Like Jesus said, our, my kingdom's not of this planet, it's here on earth. Well, that that really is a kind of a gross spiritualization of a lot of the Old Testament prophecies that talk about how the, the characteristics of the age to come is to be identified with the... Uh, the um, reduction of sin on the earth the um change in the animals and the nature of of humans and animals the lion lying down with the lamb the the, the little baby putting his hand to the um uh the the hole of the viper and thing like that he'll and they'll you know people will live securely and um the, the Torah will go forth from Jerusalem, right? Isaiah chapter 2. Uh, the mountains will drip sweet wine. Uh, the Lord will be king over all the earth in that day. The Lord will be one, like in Zechariah. The Lord will be one. His name will be one. Um, all the nations will stream to Jerusalem and pay homage to the king, uh, celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. And like it says at the end of Zechariah, things like that. Guess what, Preterist? None of that happened, right? So what are you going to do with those verses? So, um can't spiritualize all that stuff away. Plus, the really big one for me, as I'm kind of poking my finger at the preterists here for a moment, is when John talks in the book of Revelation how that for the thousand years when Yeshua's ruling, the devil will be bound. Last time I checked, he hasn't been bound. He's not bound. In fact, he's been wreaking havoc on planet Earth even in, in greater measure after Yeshua left. Right? He's, he's, I mean, look at false religions, look at violence in the earth, look at wars. I mean, hello, World War One, World War Two, all the other wars, Vietnam War, the civil wars, um, the wars that are everywhere around the world. Look at the civil unrest, look at the, um, um, the injustice in the world, look at all of the, um, um, the wrongdoings that are done by human beings, look at all the, the de demonism, all the satanic activity, uh, you know, the, the occult, and all the darkness in, in everywhere in the world. You're trying to tell me that Satan is bound right now? I don't think so. So, I get a little bit heated when I hear Predator say, oh yeah, Satan's bound right now. In what way? Come on. Let's use our thinking brains. All right, let's go back to the text. Sorry for the little soapbox there. All right, so Jesus warns, I say in my own uh, commentary, Jesus warns of false messiahs and their misleading influence. This caution against deception, I say, underscores the complexity of discerning genuine spirituality amidst counterfeit claims. And it's it's no more aware, uh, no more um, made aware then when we start looking around just do a google search for false messiahs in various places of the world right we've had our jim joneses we've had our moonsung myuns we've had um all of our people who say that um you know they're the 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 lord they're the messiah they're the jesus they're reincarnated jesus it's just so ridiculous i mean the claims are absolutely ludicrous when you consider that just about everyone who's made such a claim is dead 
and their bones are still rotting in a grave somewhere. They have not resurrected like Yeshua proved, or God proved the vindication of his son by resurrecting him from the dead, becoming the first fruits of those who resurrect and never die again, right? Jesus wasn't the only one to have resurrected. There are numerous people in the Bible who resurrected even before Jesus, right? Remember Lazarus, right? They resurrected before Jesus ever resurrected. And when Yeshua died and was crucified, there were a lot of graves that came up out of the bodies, uh, the lot of bodies that came up out of the graves that was recorded in the book of, of uh, in the Gospels. And so we know that the resurrection has been taking place. Smith Wigglesworth, a modern day um, uh, a Christian uh, evangelist or, or uh, preacher, uh, he also raised people from the dead, documented, verified, uh, medically verified resurrections from the dead. And yet, all of the people who've been, who've been resurrected have died again. They've been resurrected. They died, they're resurrected, and then they died again, right? So they're resurrected for a short time, and then they went on to die again, but not Yeshua. Resurrected and never to die again. Thus, he is the first one to have a, a glorified body. First one for all of us that will have that glorified body. So, um, false Christ. Yeah, Jesus says, don't go. Don't go. Nope, you'll know. And he's going to go on later on to say that the reason you'll know that they're false, one of the reasons is because, not just of the resurrection, but one of the reasons you'll know that they're false is because the true Christ will come in such glorious fashion that the entire world will be aware of the miraculous and the glorified event. Like the lightning flash from the east to the west, so will the sign of the coming of the Son of Man be in the sky right it's not going to be a secret event the entire world will realize that wow something is happening it won't be like some secret hey guess what i saw the christ he's over there you know, he's in this upper room you got to come with me and see him right it's the secret hidden unknown event nope that's not the way it's going to work all right verse six um Jesus continues, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not frightened for those things must take place, but the but that is not yet the end. So again, remember the disciples ask, when will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? But Yeshua starts in verse 6 to start talking about the end before he talks about his return. He reverses the, the order that the answer, the answers, there are actually two signs as I understand. There is a sign of his return and a sign of the end of the age. There are two signs that are, um, that we can be looking for. We'll get to those in time, but don't worry about it right now. Uh, I go on to say in this part of my commentary, Jesus preempts and Jesus preempts alarm caused by conflicts by emphasizing that these are just the precursors, not the ultimate fulfillment of the end times. We talked about how that these are the um, beginnings of birth pains, just like a woman goes into hard labor before she gives birth. So the labor pains are the signs of an impending birth right of an of a birth that's imminent that's right around the corner thus yeshua's warnings that he's giving to disciples of what's going to be happening are a sign of his return so that's why i don't believe that the historicists and the idealist views are really the best way to interpret these passages by stringing all the events out along history along the course of a thousand years or several thousand years since yeshua's been gone now it loses the force it destroys the force of his um pregnancy analogy where he's talking about the birth pangs and he uses that word birth pangs we're going to see here later on in the passage these are the beginnings of birth pangs um well women don't go into labor for years and years and years before they give birth to a baby that's not the way it works it's a shortened time period right even from the time from the moment of the awareness of being pregnant right the, the woman takes a pregnancy test and she realizes she's pregnant even then there are still no signs of um that there's a baby in the womb other than that she took the pregnancy test 
I mean, the baby's still so small that she can't feel anything there. It's only by ultrasound and, and, and looking inside from the outside that she can even tell that there's a baby. Eventually, the baby grows, obviously, and then the signs, you know, she starts showing. She, gives, she, she, she ends up with what we call a baby bump, right? Her, her stomach starts protruding. And then those are obviously signs that a baby's coming. But even still, there's, there's months down the road. And then what happens? Eventually, the belly gets bigger, 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 and then the the, the, the water breaks and the, the birth pains or the, the labor pains and all those things. I'm not sure I got the order correctly, but you guys know what I'm talking about. We have some really, really definitive signs that the birth is just imminent, right? I mean, when the water breaks and, and the, the labor pains really kick in, that's when it's time to get to the hospital because you know that baby could pop out at any moment. You don't know. That's when it's really imminent. But before then, it's just expectancy, not imminency. And I think that's what Yeshua is trying to get at here. There is expectancy, I'm sorry, there's expectancy up to a point, but all of that is even within the context of um, as you get closer and closer, you know that the baby's uh, right around the corner, and then there's really imminency after that. All right, so nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. In various places, there will be famines and earthquakes. I'm reminded that as of, as of this uh, teaching, there was this really massive earthquake in Morocco this week, this past week, and. Um, uh, you know, thousands of people are, are feared to be uh, to have been killed and much more um, injured. And the authorities are just saying, wow, this is a kind of a... Uh, sometimes when these things happen, they call it like a once-in-a-generation quake, where it's just bigger than we've ever seen on the records or largest in a thousand years or something. And that's what I mean by once-in-a-generation. So this just reminds me that planet Earth is starting to get close to... To the um, time that we're reading about right here in Yeshua's words. And so I say in my um, commentary that this verse further elaborates on the preceding verse, right, illustrating a world plunged into turmoil because of sin. It's man's fault because of what he did in the garden. Our first parents did in the garden. They disobeyed God. They ate from the tree when God said, don't eat from it. And because of that, sin entered into the world through that one man, and this uh, sin passed to all human beings, just like Paul tells us in Romans. And thus, the original sin that has plagued humanity also plagues planet Earth and the entire universe now, the Bible says, groans, the entire creation groans in anticipation of waiting for the sons of God to be revealed, for us to receive, to be made known as we truly are known by God, and also groans for Messiah to return and to establish His kingdom. Right, the baby must be born. So planet Earth is groaning in in labor. Um, Eventually, it's going to be groaning and labor uh, pains as the uh, time approaches. So the prophetic language paints a picture of escalating global distress. And I believe this is um, uh, deliberate by Yeshua because they are signs of the end of the age, the culmination. They did not ask, the disciples did not ask Yeshua, what are going to be the signs of things that happen on planet Earth, generically speaking, until you return. I think they specifically were aware that there were going to be some imminent signs that point to almost an imminent return or um, escalating signs that point to a culmination. In other words, kind of like um, uh, something that is so close to, as to indicate that your return or the end of the age is very, very close. There was a, a kind of a proximal um, aspect to their language, I believe. And the proof, I believe, is in the way that Yeshua answers this question, their questions with all of these um, succeeding details. And as we're going to see a little bit further, he even gives these um, kind of chronological markers where he says, 
when you see this happen and then and then and then so that we realize that there's a succession and order to what's going on it's not just utter chaos where everything's breaking loose at once there is a sense of that we who are in the know we who have eyes that are opened and are reading our bibles and are trusting in god and are in tune with the holy spirit and we're also watching the news so we can see the corresponding uh events that are happening right i mean they are events that do take place on planet earth and in our own cultures and in our politics and in our communities etc etc so they're not things that happen on another planet they happen on this planet so we are able to observe them whether you're a believer or an unbeliever you'll still be um caught up in what's taking place in the end times but the point i'm trying to highlight is that there are many of the events that will happen in a succeeding order so if there is a sequence that we can kind of go ah that happened and we're watching the dominoes fall towards a uh, an expected event so let's keep reading uh, as you can see this part of my commentary goes fairly quickly since there's not much um that's fleshed out in each one of these verses um verse 8 but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains there we go there's our analogy to the pregnancy and this really again is destroyed by the historicist and the idealist um uh, perspective on the end times in the book of revelation etc etc the historicist kind of just draws everything out over a long period of time and says you know these things have been happening for thousands of years and just like yeshua predicted so we don't really have to smash everything into a last seven year scenario the idealist also likely kind of um, spiritualizes everything away that says well they're not even really uh, actual physical events they're more like um, just spiritual events that are taking place in the heavenlies and here on planet Earth, but they don't have to even correspond to physical um, disasters and things like that. They can be all kind of just symbolic. That's a kind of idealist perspective. In other words, let's just walk away with kind of the moral of the story and the, the, the lesson that Yeshua was trying to teach. We don't have to get stuck in the details and the minutiae and the... Um, the um, whether or not this is literal fulfillment but i think those two lose sight of the idea of the beginnings of birth pains is really a shortened time frame that yeshua was talking about right because women give birth in a short amount of time period and the birth pains kick in uh very very close to when the baby's about to happen about about to um uh, come out so that that all uh corresponds of course the preterist still has a leg to stand on here he's still got a dog in this fight because even preterism with the 70 ad event was just right around the corner from when yeshua was to having his chat with his disciples right within a, within a generation so that's still good we can still um um we can still run with some of those details and say yeah they've, they've got some details to add to the discussion so let's keep going so in my own commentary to this particular verse verse 8 i say using the metaphor of birth pangs jesus conveys that the distressing events will intensify in frequency and intensity as the culmination of time approaches right self-explanatory keep reading verse 9 then they will deliver you to tribulation and he already talked about false christ and things like that and now he's going to start moving the disciples thoughts towards this idea that you're going to suffer you're going to suffer um it's not just going to be you sitting back watching the world go to hell in a handbasket rather the situation is going to turn in such a way that they're going to come after you who's the they he says then they will deliver you if you look by context yeshua doesn't actually tell them right away at first he just starts talking about all these events the beings of birth pangs and wars and rumors of wars and all the false christ and things like that but 
um, he now says they will deliver you to tribulation, which means there probably was a prior discussion. And I think the um, Luke 17 is a good example uh, where he does give prior discussion where he's uh, chatting with disciples. So by context, they understand who the they is. It's obviously the wicked rulers of the day, the unbelieving Jews of Yeshua's day who were always out to trap Jesus. And eventually they would go after the, um, the disciples of Jesus. They will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name notice that in the 70 a.d a fulfillment of this event the disciples were not hated by all nations were they no they weren't they were only hated as by as it were the nation of israel Primarily, the persecution in seventy came from the from the unbelieving uh, leaders in Israel, in Jerusalem, and in the surrounding areas. They hauled the disciples into their synagogues and persecuted them. And um, and, and the days following, again, even up into the one thirties, it was primarily an Israel centric type of tribulation persecution with the destruction of Jerusalem, the plowing under, and uh, the the um, what we call the um, the martyrdom of the of the saints and the Christians and things like that, right? Fox's Book of Martyrs, go back, go back and read that. Read about the life and times of, of the wicked Emperor Nero, who also had an intense Christian hatred. So, Jesus' words were fulfilled primarily in the first century, but it wouldn't be until they really started going around the world, like we have today, that we would be, as it were, of disciples, disciples of Yeshua, hated by all nations. Unless that's hyperbole, when he says all nations, does he just mean the nations in the Middle East? Or does he mean like even all the surrounding nations that the Gentiles would eventually uh, receive this gospel message? I mean, but the point I'm trying to make is, how could Yeshua's words here in verse 9 really make sense until Paul had gone and uh, uh, kind of spearheaded this idea to be the disciple to the, the, the you know, the apostle to the Gentiles? But, you know, I'm not going to make that a, 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 a deciding point. I'm just bringing it up for your observation. Okay, so um, what I have to say is that, uh, in my own commentary, is that shifting the focus to his disciples, Jesus foretells their impending tribulations including persecution and martyrdom we talked about how the fifth seal indicates a uh, martyrdom right particularly the martyrdom of the um christians those who follow christ but this would include faithful jews so messianic jews those who are loyal to yeshua they would receive martyrdom this prediction not only serves as a warning but also prepares them for the challenges ahead i also mentioned last week and this possibly could have been misunderstood by those who heard what i said that antichrist is going to actually go out in revelation chapter 12 near the end of that chapter and persecute the woman who is israel and her offering which would be the christians who are both jewish as well as the christians who are gentiles so he's going to persecute the woman who's israel but he's also going after those who and the the bible describes it as those who um have the faith of jesus christ and keep the commandments of god so this would be a description not just of messianic jews but also of gentiles who are loyal to god's words and god's ways and last week i mentioned how that those of israel that he's going to go after we could call those righteous Jews or those in righteous Israel. But I don't want you to misunderstand that I'm that I'm equating following after Jesus one-to-one -one with Jews who reject Jesus but yet um, remain monotheistic Jews and loyal to God. In one sense, what I'm trying to say is that when God looks at his people and identifies those who are righteous, there's this generic designation that I believe the Bible describes where righteousness applies to someone who, who has a... Um, 
a proclamation or a declaration that God is his God and that he's going to follow after God's ways. That description fits a good number of religious Jews in the world today. Even if it's what we might recognize from a Christian vantage point as superficial, because the God that they're serving is really a God of their own making, because they're rejecting Jesus, the one true Messiah, sent by the one true God that they claim to worship. You guys following along with me? So from a Christian vantage point, we understand that rabbinic Jews have a superficial worship of God, because in the end, it's going to be proven that they're, quote unquote, I'm using air quotes with my fingers because you can't see them, the quote-unquote belief in God is actually going to be proven to be spurious. It matters to nothing because if they, unless they accept Jesus, then their quote-unquote belief in God will prove to be worthless because it'll be false. But um, even at the surface level, they're still within the pale of, within God's scope of following after God's ways and demonstrating verbally a profession of belief in God. Thus, I believe they fall within the category of grace where God can use that um, superficial belief to draw them into a genuine belief in his son, as opposed to, say, compared to someone who is just outright stone-cold pagan, atheist, rejection of God, hater of God's ways, not interested in the Bible, not concerned about any ethical or, or, or moral um, uh, um, uh, uh, direction to go in his life. He's just, he's just a rebel. He's just um, someone who is just going to live his own life and doesn't care what God has to say about it. At least in that comparison model, the, the religious Jew, who am I calling the Orthodox Jew or the religious Jew, at least they are conducting their life in a, in a manner that's um, indicative of their interest in God's ways, i.e. Torah and the Bible, the Tanakh, and they make a, a verbal claim to believe in the, the one God of the Bible, the same God that we Christians believe in. And we know it's the same God because they're using the same Bible that we use. So there is, I want you to understand that when the Satan, when I believe when Antichrist goes after um, the woman, described in Revelation 12 as Israel, the woman, it is Israel. It's Israel as compared to the nations, not Israel as on the one-to-one -one person and an individual person who believes in Jesus who doesn't. It's the collective entity known as Israel because she has already been separated from the nations by God to bear God's name and, his, and to be a light and a witness to the world. Even though she's failing miserably at that, she nevertheless still is Israel. She's God's chosen. And that's why Satan hates her, and that's why Antichrist goes to persecute Israel. So that's what I mean by persecution is going to happen to the religious Jew, i.e. not the one who who gives in and um, yields to Antichrist's mark and takes the number and worships the beast and gives his allegiance to Antichrist. No, there will be Orthodox Jews and religious Jews in that day who say, no, nope, we're not going to worship Antichrist. We're not going to take the mark. We're only going to give our allegiance to God. We'll die as religious Jews. These same Jews might be rejecting Jesus, yes, but remember, in God's scope of things, they're still part of Israel. So the persecution is going to come even if they're not Christian. That's the point I wanted to make. Didn't want to confuse you. Um, thank you to my uh, faithful friend who's in the chat room right now with me in Skype who brought that to my attention where there might have been some confusion. Uh, and I apologize. So let's keep going. Uh, we've got about... I'm doing great on time. It feels like I should be out of time, but um, I'm not. Still got like 15 minutes left in the study, so let's just keep going unless my clock is suddenly wrong. All right, here we go. We're in verse 10. Uh, At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Right? Um, I go on to say this. The pressures of persecution are predicted to cause a falling away within the Christian community, leading to betrayal and division among believers. Right? Um, you know, G G Yeshua... 
uh, told us in other places. He's going to tell us later on in this chapter as well that you know parents are going to betray children and children will, be t- will betray parents, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so that's kind of the general collapse of society. But it'll even be more um, noticeable, I believe, among believers only only because we've got a sense of 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 um, a sense that God is in the matter, and we've been raised with a kind of an awareness of God's words and God's ways. We've been brought up in Christian homes, and we've been attending church. Even if we're not truly believers, the moral decay of the church will um, allows for an escape for, for uh, from that environment, from the church, for those who are actually already in a compromised position anyway. They never truly had a relationship with Yeshua, and thus for them it'll be easy to betray other quote-unquote Christians, other church-going folk, and to eventually um, give their allegiance to the Antichrist as they show who the, where their true allegiances lie. So let's keep reading. Verse 11, many false prophets will rise and mislead many. Well, wait a minute, Jesus. Didn't you already talk about many false Christs? Ah, but now he says many false prophets. He doesn't say many false Christs, but it's an overlapping theme here. Um, false religion is going to becoming more, become more and more of an issue, uh, even more than it is already. And when we say false religion, I, I get the sense that what Yeshua is talking about is counterfeit Christian religions. Because he says many false prophets will rise and mislead many. I mean, when we think about uh, the other comparative religions in the world, you know, Islam and and um, comparative to say Christianity, we got Judaism, we got Islam, we got Buddhism, we got Hinduism, we got uh, Sikhism. I think I'm pronouncing that right. We've got all the various other kind of um, local religions that are um, practiced in various uh, countries and nations and people groups around the world. Catholicism is in there. I guess it might be Christianity, but in some countries it's considered a, a different from Christianity. But you guys get the idea. So you got all these religions. But when Jesus says many false prophets, I get the sense that he's talking about. From the Christian vantage point, they will be false Christian prophets, not false other religious prophets. In other words, the whole religion is identified as false if it's outside the pale of genuine Christianity and Judaism, genuine Messianic Judaism in that regard. So we wouldn't it wouldn't really we wouldn't really need to call them false prophets in that regard. Rather, we're talking about kind of the Joseph Smiths of the world, where they're false Christian prophets. Um, the um, I mean, Muhammad also is a false prophet, but he's not a false Christian prophet is the point I'm trying to make. I get the sense that Yeshua is talking about false Christian prophets, um, but I could be wrong. I mean, this could be also generally speak of just any prophet of any religion who's going to rise and say, hey, let's you know follow after me. But there will be definitely, a, a, um, I believe, a, um, a unique phenomenon among Christianity where we have a lot of false Christ. This corresponds, I think, to the false Christ that he mentioned earlier, where the person is saying, hey, I'm Jesus, rather than saying, hey, I'm Muhammad, fall after me. Is Muhammad a false Christ? Well, yes, in one sense, but in no, no, not in another sense, because he's not a, he doesn't claim to follow after Christianity. So he doesn't kind of fit that label as false Christ in the sense of that he's claiming to belong to Christianity. So you got, I think you guys get my point without me having to emphasize it. Let's keep going. Jesus revisits the theme of deception, emphasizing that even in times of tribulation, false prophets will emerge exploiting vulnerability for personal gain. Yeah. Messiah, um, um, I'm sorry, Antichrist uh, will be the, the ultimate, consummate, false Christ, false prophet. But, as, as I had, say in uh, quickly, to add to note, the Antichrist himself will have his own second-in-command false prophet, right? You guys have read Revelation chapter um, 17, right? Um, we have the Antichrist himself, and then we also have the false the false 
prophet who is kind of like the dynamic new batman and robin um the, Ro the robin is to batman as the false prophet is to the antichrist right one is in charge and the other guy is the second in command batman's in charge robin is second in command batman is the antichrist and the false prophet is robin all right verse 12 because lawlessness is increased most people's love will grow cold kind of the same um uh, uh continuation of what he's already been talking about the escalation of lawlessness and disregard for moral principles will erode the warmth of love and compassion among individuals i think this is for everybody in the world when he says the love of many it's not just talking about christians i think he is referring to the world at large is just because the world is spinning out of control more and more people are just gonna um, withdraw their affection and their their sympathies and and their um, general regard for other people's um, uh, well-being and things are just going to become more and more hedonistic, more selfish, uh, get all they can and can't all they get. Um, it's kind of like what George Michael said in his song, um, in one of his songs, I can't remember the name of the song, but if I do, I'll tell you, but he says, um, uh, so, so you scream from behind your door, what's mine is mine and not yours. I may have too much, but I'll take my chances because God stopped keeping score, right, in this song. And it's very kind of prophetic. I, I don't think George Michael knew that when he wrote that, but in the song, he's describing how that the general decay of humanity um, for other fellow humans is that, hey, what's mine is mine. I'm just going to take all that I've got and make sure I hold on to it really tight because God is not really um, paying attention anymore, right? God stopped keeping score. Um, he even talks later on in the song about how that um, that um, uh, God turned his back and all God's children ran out the back door, right? God was not looking and all the children escaped. They they, they ran out the back door of, of God's house. And so this idea that he's, he's you know, taking shots at God in, the, in, the, in that uh, song. But the idea is, is sam similar to what I believe Yeshua was talking about here, is that general lawlessness will cause people to just um, say, you know what, I've got mine, I'm going to look out for myself, got to look out for number one, and, you know, if, you, if, if you're not having a good time, if you're having a hard time, you can't make it, you need a, you need a handout, well, oh well, sorry, you know, um, you know, too bad, so sad for you. All right, um... So let's keep going. Verse uh, 13. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved, right? It's the old, uh, uh, it's the, it's the age old um, uh, advice uh, that he who finishes last finishes, now, he who laughs last laughs best. The idea that it's not those who are strong right now, but those who finish. Right? It's not um, whether or not you're strong and can endure one trial, but can you make it to the end? Right? Um, what was it? There was a famous preacher who said it something like this way. They said it like this some way. He said, um, um, per, uh, per, uh, persevere we must, persevere we shall. Or he might, he might have reversed it. Persevere we shall, persevere we must. I think persevere we shall is, is, is uh, last. The idea is that God is going to give us true believers the supernatural ability to not only resolve it within ourselves that we are going to endure but god himself will make sure that we endure because it's the holy spirit within us that gives us the endurance that gives us the 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 the, the power to be re resolute the power to say yes yeshua i won't turn my back on you but yeshua yeshua's words are um 
uh, uh, given in such a way almost as if it's all within our power, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. It's kind of cryptic. What does he mean? Is it, do we endure because we decide to endure? Or is it that we endure because God preserves us? And that's why we are those who are of the of the group that endures, right? Which one is it? It's the, the answer is yes, yes, and yes. It's it's a little bit of both. It's kind of ambiguous, I think, on purpose. But ultimately, what the rest of the Bible tells us that um, it's ultimately Yeshua that's, that preserves us uh, up until the end. So, um, And when he says we'll be saved, again, we're talking about either a physical salvation from a certain amount of calamities and or ultimately salvation that results in entering into an eternal um, kingdom and a relationship with Yeshua in the end. But it's not just based on our endurance, right? Obviously, it must be based on a genuine profession of faith in Yeshua that causes the endurance to take place, right? It's not just, hey, I survived the Antichrist, therefore I deserve to be saved because I decided I was going to endure. Nope, it doesn't work that way. All right, let's keep going. So I go on to say that Regarding that verse, here Jesus highlights the importance of endurance and perseverance, assuring that those who remain steadfast will ultimately find salvation. So there's a little bit of both going on, and I didn't highlight that when I originally wrote this, but you guys know now. Wow, let's just keep going. We've got about five minutes left. Verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached or shall be preached in the world, the whole world, as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Again, for the preterist, um, we would have to massage this word, the nations and the world, the whole world. There are times when it's apparent that the Bible writers mean the immediate uh, geographical area known as the Middle East when they talk about the whole world, right? Like, for instance, Luke chapter 2, I believe, the famous Christmas passage. There came a, uh, I'm probably butchering this, so I'm just kind of pulling part of this from memory, but um, it, there came a time when. Uh, the decree went out by Julius Caesar unto all the world to tax, unto, uh, the, go out into all the world to tax everyone, to, uh, and it uses the phrase of unto all the world to be taxed. That Julius Caesar demanded, I think it's Julius, that Caesar demanded that all the world should be taxed. Right? It's the beginning of the Christmas story that we read out of Luke chapter two. So just go back and look up on your own. But the germane to my point is that he used the phrase all the world. Well, was he meaning all of the Middle East? Was he meaning all of the known world at the time? Was he meaning all of the globe, including the Americas, which were not discovered and as far as we know at the time? You know, was he talking about Africa and all the Asian areas and things like that? How much of all the world did Luke mean when he read, meant when he wrote all the world? So that's what we mean could be kind of a more limited geographical area, or it could mean what we now today know as the entire globe, all the world, all nations, as in everybody around the globe. Um, well, if the preterists are right, then maybe it's a limited area. That's what I'm, that's the reason why I'm kind of belaboring this point. Could mean just like the limited Middle Eastern area when he talks about the whole world and all the nations, as in disciples going out you know, uh, from Jerusalem as the epicenter and then going out like Yeshua sent them in the Great Commission. Or... From the futurist perspective, we can see that, ah, until the uh, the um, invention of modern devices that allow the gospel to go around the world, such as the printing press, such as um, modern uh, radio broadcasts and TV and uh, networks, and today we've got the internet that circles the world that can, you know, I can, I can in fact, this very YouTube video or um, MP3 podcast is going around the world right now in real time. 
I'm in one part of the world, and uh, the people in my Skype class are in a different part of the world, different time zone, different calendar date, and yet it's going around the world right now in real time. And yet also when I upload to YouTube, it's going to go around the world uh, in video format. So, hey, uh, maybe Yeshua was referring to the end times, and it had to wait until technology caught up with the ability to actually take the gospel around the world. Could be either one, partial fulfillment along with total fulfillment, um, near-far prophecy all over again. So we're drawing our study to a close. What I had to say about that particular verse is that Jesus presents a global task for his disciples. Global either in a limited sense or global in what we think of today where we've got crusades in, in almost every nation. The dissemination of the gospel throughout the world is what we're referring to either way no matter how you define the word world the word world this underscores i say the significance of evangelism in the context of eschatological events so far from being the in the place where we should just kind of hide our heads in sand and say oh lord please come rescue us i'm just going to hang out here and hide in my closet until you come to rescue me no yeshua's like no get out and spread the good news because the end is near people need to hear people need to know people need to be forewarned before God's Messiah shows up. Okay, um, so we've got work to do. You want to hasten the return of Yeshua? Get out and start evangelizing, right? Okay, verse 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Okay, at this point in time, Yeshua is going to start transitioning from what I recognize as the beginning of the 70th week and moving through the three and a half years. He's going to start transitioning into the midpoint of the week the events surrounding this really um cataclysmic absolutely kind of um uh event defining uh i'm sorry um um disaster defining event uh something uh, uh that's very very unique to the 70th week known as the midpoint of the week which i believe is very very significant given the way that scripture um uh, emphasizes it not just in the Tanakh, the Old Testament, right, Book of Daniel, but as well as in uh, the discourses that were recorded in, uh, for us in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then the way Paul picks up on that in the Thessalonian passages, and then eventually John writes about um, some of these events in the Book of Revelation. But what I'm going to do is I don't want to jump into this because this is significant. We're going to stop right here at verse 15. We'll pick this up not next week and not the week after. And not the two weeks after that. So this is going to be a very long break uh, for a while until um, we pick this up again several weeks later. Right now, again, we'll, we'll stop right here with verse 15 with um, uh, the introduction of this abomination of desolation. But that'll do it for Eschatology, a biblical study of end time events. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself. Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi, I'm a torture at Congregation K. Latunavada Harvest in uh, Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at graftedna.com and join us in, in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online and um, you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well. These uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, Torah teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and um, took a look around there as well. YouTube.com forward slash C forward slash Tetze Torah Ministries. If you do hit my website, uh, my YouTube channel there, be sure to uh, take notice that I update the uh, site 
essentially daily, uploading videos daily. Make sure then to subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like. Um, leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on. And be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles, okay? Just some brief important uh, details. If you'd like to join us for our live studies, be sure to get access to Skype somehow. If you're on my website right now um, uh, during the live study and you click on that blue Skype link, it'll actually open up Skype in your browser and you can just join us right there. And we hope you can join us live because we engage in a live Q&A after the study is over, opening up the microphones and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies. Um, uh, that we uh, enjoy engage in that live study uh, Q&A. But if not, um, take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there. And uh, preferably consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions. And I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give. I'm so uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of, of your generosity. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. My name is Ariel Lyman V. This is the final study in a quite longer than usual look at a passage that Biblical Unitarian believes is uh, an indication of a human Jesus, a human Messiah, uh, a non-divine Jesus. We've been looking at Psalm 110, verse 1, and we pulled in verse 5, but primarily Biblical Unitarian was focusing on verse 1. And their argument is basically that in the verse that you can see in front of you, we've got two lords in the passage. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. According to biblicalunitarian.com, a non-Trinitarian Christian denominational um, web resource, they believe that God is the only one true God. He's the only true divine God. There's only one person. He's numerically one with himself, meaning Father indicates God, indicates Yahweh, indicates um Adonai, and there's only one of them, so numerical oneness. Um, there's only one person is what I'm trying to say there. He is not unipersonal. He's a, he's a monad, according to their um, understanding. He exists as one, and there's only one. So, one God equals one person in their perspective. Jesus comes along as the human uh, who was brought into the world in the first century, but nevertheless, he was exalted by God, but he was not deified. He was not made into a God-man. Um, he did not predate his birth, etc., etc. He was he existed in the mind of God from eternity to past. Thus, the word of God in their perspective, or the um, what do they call it? The uh, the wisdom of God, like the book of Proverbs. So he is the wisdom of God. He's the word of God, only in the mind of God. But he didn't pre-exist as a person, as the second person of the divine Trinity. So, in their perspective, he's fully human and always has been, always will be. And the Holy Spirit simply is another name for God or is a description of the power that God bestows upon humans. So, that's the biblical Unitarian, a non-Trinitarian perspective of this particular verse. They center most of their um, explanation on the idea that the Hebrew has Yahweh for the first Lord and Adoni for the second Lord. So, we turn 
to um sorry we're gonna look at that in a moment return to the verse uh in question and look at the english and the hebrew of a psalm of david the lord says to my lord sit at my right hand until i make your enemies a footstool for your feet where we've got all caps lord in the first part of the verse and then all caps and then lowercase i'm sorry capital l and then lowercase lord in the second part of the verse and when we corroborate this against the uh hebrew on the second on the right side of my screen la david mismorn the um yahweh ladoni shavli mini ad ashit oivecha hadom lecha. so the clause in question let me highlight it for you is this clause neum yahweh ladoni says the lord or an oracle in the noun um instead of the verbal form of says like it says in the greek um but like as an apen in the greek but neum is a noun that says an oracle of the lord yahweh yhvh tetragrammaton name right there uh, yahweh and then unto so we have um conjunction along i'm sorry preposition along with preposition conjunction conjunction along with the, the noun uh, adonai so um am i getting it right la la conjunction yeah i believe that's right let me hover over it and just see yeah i'm pretty sure suddenly i'm just drawing a blank difference between conjunction and preposition can you say preposition two four unto all right, you guys know what I'm talking about. I'm just drawing a complete blank. blank I apologize. But Ladoni is comprised of two parts. There's La, which is unto, and then there's Adoni, which is um, the uh, label for God. And it means the Lord of me. It's it's a genitive sense of possessive. The Lord of me or my Lord is how we translate it in our English Bibles. So, Biblical Unitarian wants us to believe that because the Masoretes vowel pointed it as Adoni, that this is a slam dunk that is proof that this refers to a human, because according to their research, Adoni everywhere in the Old Testament always refers to humans, or sometimes to angels, but never to God. By comparison, and let me now it's a good time to bring up uh, this graphic by comparison adonai on your right side of your screen always refers to god exclusively i agree with half of their assessment i do agree that on the right side of the screen adonai does exclusively refer to god always does not refer to humans ever unless again again on the left side of your screen adonai does refer to humans it does refer to angels but i submit to you that it also refers to god in special cases and that's thus when we look at um i'm jumping all over the place i apologize uh when we look at uh here we go um there we go when we look at uh, the name of this individual in the bible in the in the book of first second samuel as well as the book of the kings first kings usually adonijah or adonijah in the uh, english adonijah is comprised of two names or labels for god we have the adoni part coupled with um the yah part so it's two parts adoni the a-d-o-n-i part first part and then the yahoo at the second part or just yah literally in the um, hebrew if i look at this part so there's the adoni part right there and then there's the yah part but germane to my point the point i'm bringing up contrary to what biblical unitarian wants me to believe and i just have to understand i just have to believe that this was either an oversight on their part an omission or outright deception i don't know shoddy scholarship take it the way you will but um they say that adoni never refers to god really this first part adoni does not refer to god 
you know, the name means the Lord is my God, or Yah is my Lord, or Yah is my God. Yah is the Lord of me. The Lord of me is Yah. I mean, did the person who named Adonijah think that they was referring to a false god, Adoni? Did, was he named after a human? Like a master? Like an angel? No, I don't think so. And this is true almost everywhere where you find biblical names of humans that have God's name contained in them, right? Um, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, uh, Israel, Yeshua, right? Our Lord's name is um, a, a shortened name of the a shortened form of the name uh, Joshua, Yehoshua, and so everyone knows that Yeho in Joshua's name is reference to God, and Shua means saves, so it's or salvation, something like that. So Joshua's name conveys a sense of God is my salvation, or God saves, or God is salvation, or the salvation of God. You know, we can kind of spin it a few different ways. Um, Etc. Etc. And so Yeshua is, is named Yeshua because he will save his people from their sins. Right? The angel told his mother Mary before he was even born, "You'll name him Jesus because he'll save his people." He's God's salvation, right? Yah, salvation. Yehoshua. No one thinks that Yeho part refers to a human or an angel. So come on, biblical Unitarian. Um, Change your um, your explanation on your website to include that Adoni. Yes, it does sometimes refer to God. It has to because the name here is pointing to God, right? So, and it's not. It doesn't say Adonai with the vowel pointing uh, similar to this, right? See the little capital T under under the N sound Adonai, the Kamats. Notice that as comparison to the little dot under the N on the left side of your screen, the Chirik, right side has a capital T looking letter. It gives you an ah sound, Adonai, and the left side has a little dot under the end that gives you an E sounding Adoni, but when you compare that to the name of this individual as the Masoretes vowel pointed it is Adonia, not Adonaya, and yet in English we kind of confuse ourselves by saying Adonijah. Right, so, alright, you guys catch my point. Alright, so I don't want to spend too much time on the, um, on the um uh what do we call the review we've already gone through that uh, there's one website here uh operated by the humanjesus.org who's been interacting with some of my youtube videos and even invited me to a debate i'm sorry i'm gonna have to turn down your debate offer uh for a few reasons number one i just don't have the um schedule that would permit me to do a really uh um, a debate that would be worth your viewership and mine as well um and number two i'm in a different time zone than you i'm quite certain you're probably in a different country than i am um, unless you're in Asia like I am, but no, uh, our debate probably also wouldn't work because when you're awake, I'm asleep, and when I'm asleep, you're awake, so that also won't work. But the last reason why I'm going to have to turn down, politely, by the way, is because, honestly, I confess, I'm not good debate material. I'm a great exegeter, and I love teaching, and I love um, looking at the, the text um, in a critical manner, but because I think that way, um, and I process information that way, I admit that I don't think I would be a very great debater. I probably would not follow all the rules the way debaters should and i um because i'm so analytical i just probably wouldn't stick to the time so i apologize but i'll reach out to my good friend rabbi eduardo of beg bethel gibor 
uh, Messianic congregation in Pennsylvania, and I'll I'll put your offer in front of him. So if you desperately want to do a do a debate with a Messianic Jewish uh, person, um, he's he's open for debate. He probably lives in the same time zone as you, which is probably America, and he has done quite a number of debates, and he's really good at him, and he can answer for me. Uh, he and I agree we're both Trinitarian. So yeah, read uh, uh, um, thehumanjesus.org. Uh, uh, reach out to R Rabbi Eduardo, and I've given you his website. Uh, the uh, web address to his personal, um, his home congregation, BethelGibor.org, I believe it is. Let me just double check. BethelGibor, I'm going to pop it into my, um, into my browser just for a split second so you can see it and it'll be caught on the, uh, on the screen for Bethel for, for the human Jesus who's watching this um, YouTube video, which I hope you are. But here we are, BethElGibor.org, B-E-T-H-E-L-G-I-B-O-R. I said two Bs earlier, but I apologize. G-I-B-O-R.org. From there, you can uh, scroll down and find the contact information for um, Rabbi Eduardo uh, using either contacts or um, script. script uh, click on who we are, and you'll see he's right there. That's him with his wife see his photo that's him all right so reach out to him and ask him if he wants to do a debate with you okay so let's read the, read the greek real quick as well um Todawid salmas apen ha kurios to kuriomu kathu ek dezion mu heos antho amthotus ek trusu hupapadion ton padon su and both sides read identical. Uh, the corresponding uh, English, A Psalm of David, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. All right, and it doesn't say for your feet part there. The uh, LXX dropped the word feet. All right, so let's do this. Since we only have one study left, and we've already looked basically at all the uh, arguments that I can tell from uh, Biblical Unitarian's point of, point of view, I also wanted to show you that um, the humanjesus.org makes a case for that um, that the kuriomu part of the Greek is contrasted to the kurios, and this seems to be an indication that the second Lord is a human and the first Lord is divine, i.e. Yahweh. And yet their, their answer, at least in this brief snapshot of their argument um, on this website, talks about how that... Um, the reason that the Greek uses kudios mu, I think they mean to say kudiomu, but they wrote it as kudios mu. I'll, I'll forgive them for that. But they indicate that this indicates that it's non-deity somehow. In all the scores of verses in which kudios, Lord God, Yahweh, is contrasted with a non-deity superior, that non-deity superior is called adoni, kudios mu, my Lord. In all the scores of verses, right? We have 6,000 verses, 6,000 plus verses that use kudios for the Lord God, Yahweh. And there are a number of places where Yahweh is replaced with Adonai by either the scribes themselves or uh, was originally written by the writers, but either way, the context demands that it's Yahweh God. But um, this humanjesus.org wants to bring up two main points, as far as I can tell. That one, kudiasmu uh, indicates non-deity. I don't see that grammatically. Kudiasmu is simply an indicative is simply indica indicative of um, the kind of the genitive form of grammar, where it indicates ownership or. Um, uh, 
association by one person to another thing, the Lord of me or my Lord, right? So we've got the mu functioning as the genitive. Kurios is the noun. So we're simply saying the, the, the Lord of me. It's mine. He's mine, my Lord. That's what mu means. Um, so don't get confused. Mu is not indicating deity or non-deity. It just indicates genitive the possessive right the lord of me or my lord the other thing that this website highlights is that um we notice that there are two places in the bible psalm 15 2 in the lxx which corresponds to psalm 16 2 in the um your english bibles and then psalm 34 23 which corresponds to psalm 35 23 in your english so i'll show you those what this website um wants you to believe or wants you to come to the conclusion is that those two references Although, we'll see them here in a second, although the writer um, has a parallel of Yahweh with Adonai, um, they are indicative of God alone and not any human, because they, they use the word Adonai and not Adoni. And thus, according to this website, this is also, again, proof that Adoni must be a human, because in those other verses, which I'll show you here in a moment, it's obviously by context pointing to the divine Lord who's sitting enthroned in heaven, which is Adonai, i.e. Yahweh, or some, some of the verses actually say El or Elohim. So, the point they're trying to point out is that this is an exception where suddenly um, Adonai or Adoni is uh, uh, used of perhaps um, uh, in a place where it could be, could have originally been God, but the Valmet, the Masoretes put it as Adoni or Adonai or some swapping. And then they make the point that we don't interpret the Bible according to the exception, we interpret the Bible according to the rule. Meaning there are exceptions they recognize, but they're just that, exceptions. They, they, they talk about that in, in this part right there. You can see it says exceptions don't not make the rule. But my, my observation to that and answer is that, well, that might be good in principle, but the Word of God is the Word of God, whether, it only, whether a verse or word only shows up once or rarely, or is it slightly ambiguous to us, the readers, or can play double duty to mean one way or the other, so both arguments are somewhat valid. I mean, we have to take God's Word as, as its whole. Besides, really, the best answer to those two passages, um, I'll put them in their order, Psalm, um, sorry, uh, oh, here we go. I wanted to use the Greek versions. Um, Psalm, uh, the first one, which was Psalm 16, verse 2, O my soul, you have said to Yahweh, you are my Lord, my goodness. So in here, um, we have Yahweh showing up in the uh, Hebrew right there, which answers to Adonai right next to it. Two, so we have a double reference to God. One is Yahweh, one is Adonai. And yet, contextually, we know that this is the Lord God. There's no human involved. Um, the Greek has epatokurio uh, kuriasmu. So we have the kudias mu showing up again, but um, the Yahweh is the first kudio, and Adonai is the second kudias. But notice it just says kudias mu. You know, it, the mu there doesn't indicate humanity, nor does it indicate divinity. It simply indicates um, uh, possessive, i.e. the Lord of me. And thus what the English says, O my soul, you have said to Yahweh, you are my Lord, kudias mu. You are the Lord of me. That's all it indicates in the Greek. Don't misunderstand the grammar. Likewise, in the chapter 25, I'm sorry, 35 of Psalms, then um, we have the, the writer saying at the very end, um, my Lord, my God and my Lord, which corresponds in the uh, Hebrew 
to um, Elohai Adonai, but in the Greek it corresponds to. Let me show you here. I'm sorry. Let's get a little farther. It corresponds to Hatheasmu Kai Hakuriasmu, which for those of you who are good Bible students will recognize instantly that this is very. This is identical word for word, except for the syntax, i.e., word order, of what Thomas said to Yeshua when he pushed his fingers into the wounds of Yeshua because he was doubting. Remember doubting Thomas? He said, until I put my fingers in the wounds, I'm not going to believe. And then when Yeshua showed up and he, Yeshua was like, go ahead, st stick your fingers in there. And Thomas is like, my Lord and my God, which in the Greek corresponds to um, ha kuriasmu kai ha theasmu. He just swapped the word God and Lord. But in the psalmist here, it's my God and my Lord. So the word God and Lord, the nouns are swapped. But the, but the syntax is the same. Ha theasmu, the theos of me, kai and, let me blow that up for you so you guys can see it. Hatheas mu, the God mu of me, Kai and Hakurias mu, the Lord of me. The word mu here does not indicate deity, nor does it indicate humanity. Otherwise, the God of me and the Lord of me would be completely ridiculous, right? To call the God of the universe as the human, right? That's clearly not what the writer is saying. Um, Especially, this is even made more emphatic in the previous passage where the first kudio, let me blow that up for you, the first kudio, the one right there, corresponds to Yahweh. Right? No one's saying that Yahweh is a human. And the second kudios corresponds to um, Adonai in the in the uh, in the uh, hebrew so right there's the first one that's yahweh that's tetragamic name for god who's obviously not a human and the second one is adonai which is just another way for god meaning the lord of uh, lord of me or my lord in the english and so in this case we have yahweh plus uh, adonai but in the second passage we have elohim or the shortened version which is el plus adonai so yahweh doesn't show up in the verse itself but if we scroll into the context of verse 24, we have judged me, O Yahweh, my Elohim. And now we suddenly have the tetragrammaton name Yahweh, and we have Elohai again. And here, the um, corresponding Greek is Sukurie Hotheasu. O Yahweh, I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to add, grab the su part. Let's just go like that and blow it up. Kurie Hotheasmu. O Lord, the God of me, O, o Lord, my God, or O Yahweh, my God, right? Just like it says in the English, O Yahweh, my Elohim, or in the Hebrew, Yahweh, Elohai, Yahweh, the God of me. So here again, in the Greek, the mu for Hathas mu, the God of me, does not indicate deity or uh, divinity, or humanity. It's simply a Greek way of saying this is the genitive. This is the possessive. This is how we add apostrophe S's in our English, right? Something to that effect. I'm look I'm using a computer that is the computer of Ariel. It's the it's the laptop of Ariel. It's Ariel's laptop. Understand apostrophe S, ownership, genitive, Ariel's laptop. Or in the Greek would be like the laptop of Ariel. 
and the word moo would show up in there somewhere or a derivative of moo might be su uh, depending on the case uh, of the noun that's driving the um, genitive case so don't get confused all right i said all of that so that we can basically conclude our study there's just too much for me to look at um i i highlighted that i talked about how that we were going to look at the sacred names the nomina sacra or the nomina divina divinia divinia and i'll just tell you off the top of my head real quick what these are what are the sacred nomina sacra they're latin for sacred names and they're basically the idea that just like in judaism um the jewish people who wanted to preserve the name of god by not writing it out used either circumlocutions like adonai or they used um a shorthand like yud yud like we find in a bunch of bibles today uh that are written in hebrew they used a double yod for the tetragrammaton name which would which should be yod he vav he but they removed the the he and the vav leaving just yod yod and a shorthand for yod he vav he but uh, there's typically some kind of code or key uh that's understood by the scribals family that this is a shortened form of the divine name of god we just want to put it in such a way that it cannot be um uh, misused or um blasphemed or um you know by by people who might discover this text and try and pronounce god's name in a, in a non-sacred way etc well the christians were doing the same thing as well with the um greek scriptures and so the nomina sacra ended up with the greek instead of saying kudios what they would end up doing let me scroll down to the text and you can see it into this um translate this uh commentary what they would do end up doing you can see right here is for god Oops, let's try that again. For God, Theos in the Greek, they would simply write the first letter and then a representative of the last letter S, the sigma, written in all caps with a letter C. Or uh, they would just write it as the capital uh, theta and then the capital letter for sigma, which looks like a capital Y to us, to the people who can't read Greek. Looks like a capital O and a capital Y. You can see that right there so that's theos so that's one version for god they just took out the middle letters for lord which should be in all caps is kudios right there we write it in the this uppercase and lowercase like that they abbreviate that as either capital k for the first greek letter and then the capital c for the final capital letter in greek or sometimes it looks like a ky like the acronym for the, the initials for the state of kentucky right ky um, but actually, that's the first Greek letter and the last Greek letter. So for Christ, the same thing, Christos, becomes capital X and capital C, or sometimes capital X, capital Y. And then Jesus, which is Jesus, is capital I and then capital C, like there, or capital I and capital Y, like that. Okay, so what's the point? Is that when we turn to these types of um, Greek uh, manuscripts, like I've got pulled up right here, as you can see on your screen, this is actually Psalm 110. Uh, verse 1 as quoted from the Matthew passage where Yeshua is arguing with his with the Pharisees you know why did David call him Lord when he quotes the Lord said to my Lord Matthew 25 verse Matthew 22 verse 43 and so the Greek says um apen kurios to kurio mu kathu ek desion mu heos on thu tu ek thrusu hupa hupa kadon ton to uh tone don't sorry the greek's a little different on that i'm reading here on the right side of the screen i'm not reading the actual script that i was just reading a moment ago and this is all caps and this is really hard to read but i think you can see that if i click on the highlight for the um word kudios see the red 
on my screen right now, see the red square surrounding those two letters? If you look at the two letters that say KC, above those two letters, there's this line. That line is the sacred uh, nomina sacra. They would put underlines, not underlines, but superscripts above the two letters. First, they shortened it, made it into um, uh, kind of shorthand. And then they also, these were the Christians that were doing this, they put a line above it that was kind of a code for them to say this was a divine name. So when Jesus is quoting Psalm 110.1, the Lord says unto my Lord, the apen is said, and then the word, the very next word, the KC, is the Lord. That corresponds to the Hebrew Yahweh. So this is obviously a divine figure because it's Yahweh himself. So that's the first kudios. But notice in the second kudios, which looks like kudio because it's tokudio mu. So it's got two different Greek letters, but it's still a capital K and then a capital O, which looks like a capital W to us. Looks like KW. But notice the little line. Can you see that on your screen? I'll blow this up in post-production for you as well. But it's KW, which is, corresponds to Kuri O, the capital letter for K, K, and then the O letter. And it looks like a W to us. But notice the line above it. This is the Christian's way of saying, this is a divine person. To us, we recognize this Lord as divine. So this is just another commentary to the text. I realize this is not what the original Masoretes wrote. And it is, is also not, as I understand it, what perhaps the non-Christians might have written, but at least it represents, and this is a very old text that I'm showing you. This is, I think, the, uh, yes, this is the Codex Sinaiticus, which is a very, very old original text going back to the first and second century. But at least it shows that that way, I mean, a long time ago, already we had this idea that Jesus is divine. He is the second Lord in the Psalm passage, and he's a divine figure. And also, you have to remember as well, that um, when we're talking about the first century Christian heresies that were um, challenging the, the uh, first century church, that one of the very first early Christological um, controversies had to do with whether or not Jesus was human, not whether or not he was divine like today. So here's the point I'm trying to make. We have Arianism that exists in the world today, but Arianism is a denial of Jesus' divinity. It says that Jesus was not divine. He was, he was, it's a form of stripping Jesus of his full divinity. It says that Jesus is a creature. He was created by God. He's not share the full divin, de, uh, deity that God does. It lowers him in, such a, in some way. It's a lower form of Christology. But Arianism is not the first heresy or Christological um, uh, uh, challenge to the first century church. It, in fact, was docetism, which is actually a denial of Jesus' humanity. In other words, Jesus was fully accepted primarily as divine, and even so much so that there was some questions about his humanity. In other words, docetism says he wasn't even human. He was fully divine, so much so that his body was actually just a phantom. It was an appearance of a human, but actually he was truly fully divine, fully God, fully uh, um, deity. And that's heretical as well, because the Incarnation accepts the fact, the reality that Jesus is fully human and fully divine. It balances both of them out, fully, truly, both of them at the same time, two natures. And yet, Docetism says, nope, he's fully divine, and Arianism says, nope, he's actually just a creature, he's, he's fully human, or he's a creature in that regard. The, the Jehovah's Witnesses take that a step further and say, well, he's the first creature created by God at the beginning of creation, which means he can't even be truly, fully human. But 
you know, that's just kind of a weird way of thinking of Jesus. Nevertheless, I just remind, I brought that up to remind you that it's Docetism, Docetism that preceded Arianism as one of the first Christological controversies in the first century, which means you, Biblical Unitarian, which is uh, you know, a Johnny-come-lately form of um, the early version, I can't remember what they originally were called, but Sabellianism, if I remember. Um, you guys are are coming along later trying to argue for the fact that Jesus is fully human. The early first Christians were, just like this um, Nomina Sacra shows, they were following after what they considered to be a, a fully divine human. So that's, those are some details that we're looking at. But in closing, as I'm drawing this study to a close, since I really ran out of time, I wanted to talk more about um, the fact that, and I'll just kind of park on this for a moment, is Jesus human or is he divine? The Bible teaches both. Look at these three bullet points. Point number one, the Lord swore to David a firm oath that he would not renounce one of your own issue I will set upon your throne. Notice that in the Psalm 132.11 reference here that God is promising David a human ancestor. One of your ancestors will sit on the throne. There's nothing in the verse that indicates that this ancestor would be divine or more than human. David could understand this promise here from God to be fully human, just like um, Solomon was fully human. He was a he was an offspring of David, right? He was a son of David. One of your own issue I will set upon your throne. David's human, therefore my offspring will be human. No problem. But notice what begins to happen in the biblical text as God develops these promises to David, and we show that we find them in other places in the Psalms as well as other scriptures. Look at the second bullet point. Let me tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, this is the Messiah, the King uh, Messiah talking about God his Father, you are my son, I have fathered you this day. Now we begin to realize that, Yes, this could still be a human king, but there are definitely hints and um, uh, kind of uh, this, this um, what can we say, God's way of tipping his hand a bit towards the human authors, that this son of mine will be more than human. You are my son. Today I have fathered you. I have begotten you. And it's the whole monogenes word where you are the only begotten. You are the unique Son of God, not the only one who is the Son, and not the, certainly not begotten in the form of, in the sense of humans beget other humans. But when God says, you are my begotten Son, like we know the famous verse, um, God sent, uh, John 3, 16, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. The word begotten there is the only one of a, of a, of a class, the only unique Son of God. And indeed, Yeshua is in a class all by Himself being truly human and truly God. But notice the, the final bullet point. Clearly, the figure in this final bullet point is more than human. How do we know that? But he is human, but he's more than human. Why? Notice the verbiage. And this is still speaking of the same future um, king of Israel that would sit on the throne, right? The offspring of David. Uh, notice what um, God says. This time, I think Solomon is part of the context, but David is also caught in there. When your days are done and you follow your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. So God telling David that um, Solomon will come after you and then, but there will be more. Your offspring after you, uh, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons. I will establish his kingship. So there's the human part. He shall build a house for me, right? Solomon built God's house uh, because David didn't. Um, and what, what does God say? And I will establish his throne how long? Forever. 
I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. So we have language that just pulled from the book of Psalms where he says, you are my son, I fathered you. And we have language that's pulled from the previous Psalm 132.11 where David is told this promise that uh, this will be a son from your own issue and I'll set it, establish his throne. But notice the kicker clause where God says, I will establish his throne forever. David's throne wasn't established forever with David sitting on it, and neither was Solomon's. But when God says, I will establish his throne forever, not your throne, David, forever. If God would have said, I will establish your throne forever, then perhaps God was telling David that there will always be a king to sit on your throne. David, it's your throne, but you'll always have offspring to sit on your throne, meaning just one human after another, even though they'll be born and raised and die, nevertheless, they'll, they'll be from your lineage. It'll be your throne, but the kings that'll sit on it will just uh, be occupying the place that's your throne. But that's not what God says. He says, I will establish his throne. Now, I know you're thinking, Ariel, are you building all your theology off of one little pronoun? No, I'm not. The point I'm trying to establish is that when God says his throne forever, this is also reminiscent of the Daniel passage where the Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days, and it's the throne of the Son of Man that's established forever and ever. And also, in the book of Revelation, when John sees the Lamb who sits on the single throne of the one who sits on the, lamb, on the throne, which is God the Father, one throne, but there's the Father and the Lamb, and the Lamb is also worshipped, the worship is forever and ever, right? So, the point I'm trying to highlight is that in noticing the word his there, that it's his throne, the, sh the focus shifts slightly from David realizing that this is my throne to actually that this is actually the Messiah's throne that I'm actually occupying, right? He's my offspring, so he's my junior in that regard, but just like Yeshua brought up in the Matthew passage that we've been referencing, this Lord is greater than me. Number one, he's greater than me because he's Lord. He's Adonai. Or if you want to say he's Adonai according to the Masri, it's fine. But nevertheless, he's greater than me, David says. The Lord says to the Lord of me. He's my Lord. He's greater than me. But also, his throne is forever. David's throne is not, by comparison, David probably wouldn't think that his throne was forever. Rather, David would understand that he would always have an offspring of his up occupying the throne. But ultimately, it's God's throne that God gives to the human king or gives to the divine king. God gave David his throne. God gave Yeshua his throne. But in the case of Yeshua, unlike David, the throne is will be established forever under this Messiah's name as is corroborated and verified by other passages like the Daniel, the Daniel 7 passage where the Son of Man gets a throne and a kingdom forever and the Revelation passage where he, um, John sees the, the Lamb and the, and the one sitting on the throne of the Father, and they are enthroned forever, etc., etc. It's not David who's enthroned forever and ever. It's only the Messiah who's enthroned forever and ever. So, basically, we've run out of time, but I believe I've given enough information for us to um, come to a, um, a, a, a very... Look at that one. Service unavailable. Yeah, there was this... Uh, argument from Dr. Michael Brown that I wanted to show you, but suddenly their website doesn't work on me. Um, I think we've given enough information, so we'll just park my uh, uh, picture there. In closing, what we've come to the conclusion is that Jesus is fully human. So, any Old Testament passages that talk about his humanity, even if it does say Adonai, people, even if it does say Adonai, I'm sorry, even if it's an Adonai in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, Adoni, even if it does say that, no problem for we Trinitarians. Why? Jesus is fully human.
yeah, he's fully human. He just happens to be fully divine as well. So, biblical Unitarian, listen up for a moment. I'm going to say this, and then I'm going to close my argument here. We'll shut down the study, and we'll close in prayer, and that's it. Your argument for a human Jesus does not um, deny Jesus' divinity. It is not an argument against the Trinity. It is not an argument that denies this divinity by declaring that he is fully human. Why? Because we agree that he's fully human as well. He's fully human and tru truly human. Not like the docet to say, where he's just a phantom human. And he's not fully God in the sense that he loses his humanity. Rather, and he's not like what you guys say, he's fully human and he loses the divinity. No. We Trinitarians believe he's fully and truly human, and he's fully and truly divine. Therefore, your argument about him being human from the book of Psalms here, the Lord said to my human Jesus, sorry, that just tells me only half the picture that I already agree with. That he's truly human. That's it. Even if David was seeing a human, yeah, no problem. I don't have a problem with that as a, as a Trinitarian. Tell me something I don't know. What you should tell me is um, show me and refute irrefutably, right? Refute um, unquestionably how um, Jesus being fully human proves that he can't be divine, right? How does that work? Nope, that doesn't work because even in your own admission, God can incarnate himself even if it's at brief moments, like the Genesis 18 passage where he became a man and uh, served and was served food by Abraham, right? From Abraham's perspective, he looked like a human being. Right? Indeed, it's sort of the angels as well. So, was God just like um, appearing as a human? Did he truly become a human? Was it an incarnation? Well, it wasn't an incarnation, but it was a theophany. And it was a theophany in a human form because he ate, right? He, he, his body functioned the way normal humans function. He wasn't pretending to eat. He actually ate the food. Rabbinic Judaism thinks that he just pretended to eat. He put the food to his mouth and he made the mouth motions, but he didn't actually swallow anything. He just imitated mo motion eating. But nope, as far as I can tell, the text, if I take it at face value, he um, theophanized into a human. I'm creating a word. Theophanized? Is that a word? No, I don't think so. He turned himself into a human just for a brief moment and chatted with Abraham and then turned himself back into God and went up to heaven, right? Plus, the last thing I want to point out is this, and we'll talk about this in future verses. A biblical Unitarianism, I'm not questioning your, valid, your valid claims to be in Christians. I'm not doing that. Your belief in Jesus as a human does not negate your statement about that you believe unto him for salvation. As far as I can tell, you guys are genuinely saved, and you are my brothers, and I welcome you as my brothers. You just are only seeing half the picture as to who, you, who your Lord and Savior truly is. That's one thing. The other thing I want to say, and then I will close, is that in future passages, and I'm, sure, I'm sure we'll bring this up, you want to tell me that Jesus is fully human, truly human, and only human, like all other humans are, and yet Jesus in his own words, I don't have to bring this up now, but you know the verses that I'm talking about. Jesus, in his own words, declares that he is the one who came down from heaven. He is the bread that came down from heaven, and he's not just speaking metaphorically. He also says in other places that no one has come, no one has descended except the one who, no one will ascend except the one who has descended, namely himself. No one has gone up into heaven except the one who already came down. So, in multiple places, not just by Yeshua himself, but also other writers attest to the fact, like Paul, talk about that Jesus is the one who came from his Father. How could he be fully human if he came from heaven? Humans don't come from heaven. We come from women. Just like you guys admit that Jesus came from his mom, Mary. I mean, I came from my mom, unless you're a test tube baby, right? But, I mean, Adam and Eve are kind of the exception because they came directly from God. But even in that example, they did, they're not declared as coming from heaven. 
They came from the dirt, right? God whipped up the humans from the dust of the ground. What's the point I'm trying to emphasize? Jesus declares that he came from heaven. That means if he came from heaven, that means he's not human the way we are. He's not the same type of humanity that we are. His birth, or his existence, I should say, predates his birth, right? Which is exactly what John says earlier in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God in the beginning, prior to the creation, and therefore the Word was God as to his nature, full deity. And it is this Word that became flesh, right? There's the incarnation, there's the virgin birth that John describes. It's that bread that came down from heaven. He's that one that is the true Son of God who came from heaven, who has fully God's um, divine nature, and yet he wrapped himself in humanity, just like uh, Philippians chapter 2 talks about the Carmen Christi, where he lowered himself a little lower than the angels for a short while, and just like um, uh, I was going to say there's a reference in the, the book of Revelation, but off the top of my head, I just lost it. My choo-choo got derailed. So, we'll stop there. That'll do it for a Trinitarian response to Biblical Unitarianism. Let's close in very brief prayer. Lord, I bless your name. Abba, I'm thankful for the opportunity to share my thoughts with others, praying and believing that they are your thoughts, but I realize that I have error, so uh, forgive me where human error creeps in. But thank you for your text. Thank you for your word, which is preserved by your Holy Spirit, and it becomes the objective standard for us to um, weigh all other human opinions against. Even if we know that scribal errors are, exist in different places, there are manuscript variants and things like that, copyist errors, um, words that got uh, deleted over time, and so thus when translation took place, we just had to fill in the missing gaps, what we call the lagune in our um, in our um, textual uh, families, the holes that are missing there. That's the what I mean by lagune. Thank you, Lord, nevertheless, that you have preserved the meat of the text. The main thrust of your message remains unchanged, and therefore the words are reliable, even if there are copyist errors and 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 uh, uh, purposeful um, emendations and omissions and things like that. Nevertheless, um, we thank you for your word. Help us uh, to um, appreciate um, all that it represents in our lives. Help us to hide your word in our hearts so that we won't sin against you. Uh, continue to carry us along during these festival days and uh, cause us to see your son, Messiah Yeshua, because he is the only true light that has come into the world, and we will worship him. And we'll give you the praise and the glory of Yeshua. Amen. Oh,